When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to a Doug LaMaurice-less edition of Buckeye Talk. Bill Landis and Tim Bielek here. Doug is uh, in the middle of the North Pacific Ocean or something like that. He's cruising to Alaska with his family. So he's not here this week. Tim and I are. And we're going to do an all-mailbag version of Buckeye Talk uh, for a couple of reasons. We have a lot. We have a backlog of questions. And also, we're lazy and didn't feel like coming up with a topic this week. So we're going to hit all the questions you send in via email, all the questions you send in uh, via Twitter. I have strong opinions about last week's podcast that I mostly wasn't on. Because I was on vacation, I was on for the beginning, and then Doug and Tim talked about the top 50 players list, uh, and I listened to it on the car, and my girlfriend kept asking me why I was so angry. It's because I had takes that I wanted to shout at both you and Doug. Were you shouting, Tim. Were you shouting them in the car? Is there Every one? now and then I couldn't help myself, um, but I mostly kept them to myself. Uh, we got a question about it, and that will probably send me on my rant, but mostly I want to save... Uh, my anger for when Doug gets back uh, next week. So <laughs> I'll just sit back in the corner and eat some popcorn while that's going. Oh on. no, you're part of it too. You're part of it too. I defended ninety percent of what you said. You're part of it too. Um, so that'll be next week. This week we're doing questions. Uh, but before we get to questions, Tim, I walked into your apartment and you said you had farts. So let's get some farts. Got a couple. Um, not really. None as good as uh, Jack Kewich's, which he tweeted me the other day, thanking me for. Not necessarily pre-screening what he said, but... Stay uh, off the myth. Yeah, but uh, we'll go with this one with uh, Jacob Biddulph from Nashville, Tennessee, the home of Ohio State's latest commitment, by the way, four-star linebacker Kane Patterson. Nashville is basically an extension of Columbus right now, the way Ohio State's recruiting Tennessee. He says, I listen to all the, the Ohio State football podcasts that I'm aware of. This is by far my favorite. They keep it fresh and fun. I enjoy the two-hour podcast. Gives me enough audio to listen for a couple days. And let's face it, what else, what else do we have to watch or listen to in July? Baseball? No thanks. Go Bucks. Although I will say this July, got the World Cup. and it's, I've been tweeting about, in case you've been following my Twitter, that's like the, num- like the number two thing I've been tweeting about. It's the, the number one thing you've been tweeting about because I have mobile notifications turned on for you and Doug, and I turned yours off during the World Cup because <laughs> it was getting too much. I was, it's the best World Cup I think I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, apparently it's crazy. Uh, it's fun. What's, how's the U.S. doing? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Ask me again in four years when they're in pl- playing in Qatar. Yeah, when they're playing on the surface of the sun and it's 150 degrees and they're playing soccer. Um, okay, let's get the questions. Ari Wasserman just texted me if I wanted to go to lunch. <laughs> no. Questions, uh, you can send them in via email, 
BuckeyeTalkPod at gmail.com. We've gotten a lot of good response to that. You can send them in on Twitter at BuckeyeTalkPod. Um, and we actually have more email questions this week than we have Twitter questions, which is interesting. And I'm glad you guys are using it because I think it's better. You can just ask, explain yourself a little more via email, which is nice. First question from Kevin Carver. He asked, you guys have talked a lot about probable change in quarterback recruiting away from true dual threats. Do you think this has any impact on Tate Martell playing when he is ready? Um, Tim, I'm going to let you answer the second part of that, but I, I want to address the first part first. I, I don't – trending away from true dual threats is probably the wrong way to spin it, and, and if, if that came off that way, then that was not at least my intention when talking about it because the running element always will matter. Um, and these guys are all, they're all quote unquote dual, they're all able to run. They're all dual threats. They're none of them, none of these guys they're recruiting are statues back there. They're mobile to varying degrees. For instance, Tuan Mathis is much more of a runner at the moment or better at running at the moment, I would say, than, than Jack Miller. But Jack Miller is a more advanced passer. Matthew Baldwin is a more advanced passer than Dwan Mathis, but all three of those guys can move. Um, so I don't, I don't want to, I don't want lead, want to lead people to believe that Urban Meyer and Ryan Day are trending away from dual threat quarterbacks. Um, I just think, as I've said a couple times on here, that they are valuing arm talent, strength, throwing ability, accuracy, however you want to describe the ability to throw a ball a little more than they have been in the past and maybe trending away from guys who what they do best is run. Um, but the running threat will not go away. So with that said, Tim, do you think that the current quarterback recruiting trend has any impact on Tate Martell when he's ready to play? Um, I would say no because I because Martell will be more advanced kind of in, as far as you know development of a quarterback. I mean, when you consider Dwan Mathis will be coming in twenty nineteen, Jack Miller twenty twenty, hard to envision you know a true freshman and a, I'm going to say redshirt freshman and Dwan Mathis beating Tate Martell out for a job if he's still there. But the thing for Martell is he's got he's going to have to get a little better throwing the football. I know not really great in the spring game. Granted, he had a couple drops which hurt his completion percentage. He also wasn't throwing to the top receivers but you know at the end of the day he's got to be able to throw the football a little better the running ability is no problem I mean I wrote about it at, shortly after the spring game how he can create some problems because of his dynamic running ability he ran the he ran some good read options good fakes and I think that's a dimension that will get him on the field if not this year if not you know, in the near future, just in some capacity as part of a change-up package. Yeah, I think I think an interesting way and another way to ask this question is if Tate Martell was in the 2019 quarterback recruiting class, would Ohio State have recruited him? And I think the answer is yes. Um, I, I do think that what Tate does best at the moment is create things with his legs, but I also think he is a good enough uh, passer and like the, the kind of passer – that, that they would still value. Um, I think he has a strong arm. People might see five foot eleven and, and think that he doesn't have a strong arm. I think he does have a strong arm. I thought that what we saw in the spring game was not necessarily indicative of where he is at the moment as a thrower. I think he still has a lot of room to grow. And Ryan Day sort of said the same thing. But I also think that that wasn't like the best display of where he actually is at the moment. Um, so no, I, I don't think that that the the trend, um, if if you want to call it that, and I think it's fair to call it that because it has changed. Um, I don't think it impacts Tate's future. Um, at least I say that now. Now we we can watch four games of the 2018 season, and maybe maybe I change my mind if it does, you know, turn totally into a 
kind of air it out kind of offense. I just don't think that's going to happen. Um, I think it'll be different um, and less reliance on the quarterback run, but they'll also play to the strengths. And if Tate Martell's the quarterback, I think you would see the quarterback run come back into play a little bit. The offensive shift that's happening is not abandoning the quarterback run. It is trying to become less reliant on that and be more diverse. And I think that Tate Martell has just as good a chance of orchestrating that kind of offense as, as anybody else on the roster and anybody else they recruited. So uh, when his time comes, which will at the earliest be the 2019 season, I think he can be the guy. 2020, I think he could be the guy. I know I said last week that Doug asked us who would be the starting quarterback in 2020, right? Yeah. And I said I don't. I didn't think it would be Martell. If the scenario is Dwayne Haskins is a two-year starter – I didn't. I don't think I wouldn't pick Tate Martell to be the 2020 quarterback, only because I don't think he'd wait around that long here for his shot. Um, but if he did, I certainly think he could be the starter. It's just a matter of how patient do you want to be. And guys in that position, I don't think are always the most patient. But I don't. But I don't think that the the switch we're seeing in quarterback recruiting means Tate Martell does not have a place at Ohio State because I certainly think he does. Figaro Davenport. That's a name. Somebody sent an uh, sent an email. Uh, he said he signed an email Sam, but then the email is from Figaro Davenport. He asks if Dwayne Haskins performs really well this year, do you think Urban will catch flack for his decision to start JT last season? At the beginning of the season, Haskins was in the conversation, but Urban went with the veteran again. Um, I, I think I would disagree slightly with with the last part of that. I, I, it was never a question who was going to start. The question started to creep up after the Oklahoma game, which was early in the season. But it wasn't like we were going through camp wondering, well, is JT going to lose his job? Like, that was that was never an option. Um, but the first part of the question is interesting. Like, well, Tim, do you think that if Dwayne Haskins comes out and lights it up the first two weeks, which is very possible because they're going to play Oregon State and Rutgers, um, are people going to start relitigating again the JT Barrett era and, and criticize Urban Meyer for not making a switch to Dwayne Haskins during the 2017 season? Maybe. I... I think, well, you brought up a good point. There was never going to be any discussion. Urban Meyer would not have any of the debate whatsoever when it came down to who was going to be starting quarterback. I think the the biggest reason, again, is just the fact that JT was just had been the star for the better part of three seasons. Dwayne Haskins had never played in the game until the Army game. Um, he had always been kind of on the sidelines. And we're talking about a redshirt freshman quarterback who we didn't even really get to see what he was about until – Army and UNLV when he got some reps, and then everybody knows what he did against Michigan to close out that game. Um, I think, in a, I mean, I don't know how much you can gain out of, you know, Dwayne Haskins being really dominant against Oregon State and Rutgers, because frankly, he's probably supposed to, because both of those teams are, neither of those teams are going to be very good, especially defensively. It's, Rutgers might, well, no, I shouldn't say that. I'm not going down to Tim Bielek for all we know Rutgers. Rutgers is better than Oregon State, though. Right. I mean, I wrote I wrote about it. Rutgers will be, I think, slightly better. They did make a step forward. So I think yeah, they're yeah. not, not going to challenge Ohio State. I wrote they first have to score points on Ohio State before you can even start to seriously consider them. But They might score a touchdown and hold Ohio State under 50, which would be progress. Significant progress. I yeah. mean, that'd be something to be happy about if you're Rutgers, I think, in that situation. But... It, it would be – I think part of it is just it would be so – it's so hard to have revisionist history because you throw Dwayne Haskins out there as a redshirt freshman quarterback who never had a game in his life. He has to play Oklahoma in his second game a year ago. That's asking a lot of a young quarterback who didn't even get a chance to get on the field, he, who missed his entire 2016 season redshirted. Um, he's coming into a different situation where he's got much more experience so I mean, fans may say that, but I think at the end of the day, 
Urban Meyer won with the experienced quarterback, and coaches will do that, you know, nine times out of ten. Yeah, I think um, if Dwayne Haskins starts out on fire and you couple that with what he did in the Michigan game, I think that's somewhat sufficient evidence that he could have been pretty good last year. Um, and I would understand the urge to want to look back to 2017 and think what might have been if Dwayne Haskins was the quarterback instead of JT Barrett. Um, I would just say don't do that because you'll just make yourself miserable. Enjoy the 2018 season. Don't look back to 2017, 2017 and think of what might have been. Um, if Dwayne Haskins is really good, then worry about Dwayne Haskins being really good in 2018 and enjoy the ride because if he's really good, um, that's why we all picked Ohio State to win the national championship. By the way, are we held to that? Um, I don't think any predictions become official until we put them on video or like we put them okay. in print. Okay. We were just talking about before the podcast, you know, the idea about the, the idea of Ohio State winning the national championship this year because I just looked at it on Twitter. Alabama's down a second linebacker. One got kicked off the team. Another one's out with an ACL injury. And talking about Clemson, how their offense has some question marks, and how Kelly Bryant was exposed in the playoff game against Alabama. It's interesting to think about that this might be a better chance for Ohio State than we thought, considering how how dominant Clemson and Alabama have been the past couple seasons. It feels a little open. It feels a little like I, I think. And somebody asked us if I can find that question. Was it on? Was it through Twitter? We can jump ahead to it. Uh, no, it was an email. Sorry, sorry for the dead air. Um. Can't find it. Somebody asked us uh, who are – oh, if the committee has um, – here it is. It's from Eric Boucher. He said, general question, if the committee has their top four teams already selected, which teams are they and how do they stack up against your list? Um, like Ohio State, Alabama, and Clemson are going to be in everyone's top three. And then like probably Georgia – and most people's top four, although I know Jake Fromm, oh, Jake Fromm should be fine for the start of the season, but he did just get hurt on like a water skiing accident yeah, like, or something like, like a, that. like a boating accident. It's something weird with the SEC and boats this year. I mean, Jake Fromm breaks his non-throwing hand. You have the Alabama players, including Tua, stuck on a boat on Nick Saban's boat in the middle of a lake. Their boat ran out of gas. Yeah, I think that might have been staged. Um, <laughs> but anyway, my point is... Uh, like we'll put out our playoff picks in August sometime, but like right now, I think those three Alabama, Ohio State, and Clemson ha- like have to be in your top four. Um, and then the fourth team, like maybe somebody might pick Washington, somebody might pick uh, Wisconsin. Although it's, I don't think two teams from the Big Ten would get in. Um, Georgia, some there's a handful of other teams, but but my point is that it does it feels open. It does not feel like. There's a clear-cut favorite um, if you look at like what everybody has coming about. There's a lot to like about Clemson's defense. I think it's going to be great and probably the best in the country. But like Tim said, there's questions about Clemson's offense. Um, I think there's a lot to like about Alabama's offense, regardless of who the quarterback is. But I think there are questions about Alabama's defense. And there are questions about Ohio State, too. But the, but the point is, like, there's not – I don't think there's anyone coming back who's so loaded that you're just like, oh, yeah, that team's going to win the national championship and they should be the favorite. And anyone who suggests otherwise is crazy. Um, it seems open. So – and I don't know if I was thinking that when I when someone put us on the spot and asked us a few months ago if Ohio State's going to win, but win the national title. But I do feel not not more confident, but a little better about just sort of saying that on a whim when you assess what everyone has coming back. Who'd have thought we'd be talking about a Nick Saban team that w- that you felt more certain about their offense than their defense? That's crazy, isn't it? Bizarro world. Yeah. 
Nick Saban. What if I said that to Nick Saban's face, he might punch me. <laughs> um, email question from Mark Condon. He asked, "Will this year's version of the Rushman package be the most lethal combination we've seen yet?" With Nick Bosa, Chase Young, Jonathan Cooper, and Draymond Jones. Tim, what do you think? That's a pretty interesting package and pretty interesting combination. I'd say certainly because you have three guys who should be first-round picks. We know Bosa's got top, like, if there's no quarterback that's worth being number one, Nick Bosa will be in that conversation uh, this coming April. Chase Young's very similar potential. Draymond Jones we talked about, you know, he could be a first-round pick as long as he, you know, bounces if he has another year like 2016, he will be a first-round pick. Jonathan Cooper, we all forget about Jonathan Cooper. He was still a very very highly ranked prospect. who's had to wait his turn. So uh, that package has a chance to be very devastating. I know Ohio State doesn't have the depth at defensive end that they necessarily did a year ago, but they can. They still have options to work with, and their top end is so just strong with Bosa and Young that Larry Johnson's got some fun things to work with. Yeah, I think I think it'll be the best, and I don't know if I agreed with um, what sort of became the default last year, which was not having Draymond Jones on the field in a lot of the situations. It was I don't know these percentages off the top of my head, but I would guess that at least ninety percent of the time it was Nick Bosa, Tyquan Lewis, Sam Hubbard, and Jalen Holmes, and and I would consider putting Draymond on the field ahead of maybe one or two of those guys. Um, and you're talking about three three of the four guys who were in it last year all got drafted, and the fourth is back and is potential for number one overall pick, like Tim said. So I don't want to like minimize that when we're talking about this, but Nick Bosa and Chase Young are potential top five overall draft picks, and Draymond Jones, I think, can be a first-round pick, and Jonathan Cooper is a borderline five-star prospect who we just haven't seen enough of yet to form really strong opinions on. But you're talking about four of the most talented defensive linemen, at least on paper when they were recruited, that Ohio State has brought here. And all four of them are going to be on the field together in third down passing situations. I think it, I think it will be the best Rushman package combination that Larry Johnson has used. And he's only been doing it since really kind of threw it out there in 2015. Um, but it's really been 16 and 17 in the last two years. Um, I think this will be the best. And, and potentially, like by a significant margin, this could be the best. What would I just had this idea pop in my head? Would you want if you assume Nick Bosa would be the one to slide inside because of his size? Would you want him and Chase Young on the same side, or would you want them on opposite sides? Say that again. If Nick Bosa were going to be the one to slide inside because he's got that size, slide in defensive yeah. tackle with with Draymond, would you want Chase Young and Nick Bosa on the same side of the four or the opposite ends? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, that's a lot to handle on one side of the line. I think I might put them together. Um. Yeah, I think I would go Cooper and, and Draymond on one side and, and Young and Bosa on the other. Um, and I would even give like Draymond a chance every now and then, I think, to to, to pop outside too. Um, but yeah, I, I like I like Bosa and, and Young on the same side. What, what do you like? Do you think that'd be – would yeah. you do it the other way? I, actually, I do like the idea of putting them on the same side. You can obviously mix it up, but, I mean, you can't just overload one side of your offensive line protection. So you gotta, you got to be willing to take one guy one-on-one and hope for the best and hope that your line can somehow hold up against Jones and Cooper or whatever combination. And even if Ohio State decides to blitz there as well, you can do so many things with that. So I'm curious what that's going to look like. We're not going to get probably the full unraveling until maybe TCU and Ohio State wants to, if they want to hold some of those cards up until that game and really start to open things up defensively. Okay. Last time, Tim, you and I did a podcast, uh, I felt like there was a little bit of, not not complaints, but 
it was more straightforward. It was like a lot of football and not a lot, not a whole lot of grab ass, which is what we normally get into. <laughs> um, so I'm going to mix in some grab ass questions in between the football questions when I can. <laughs> so we had a Twitter tw- Twitter question from Kev Carver, who I think I might have already read an email from, didn't I? Yeah, I did. Congratulations, Kev Carver. You get two questions in the first 20 minutes of Buckeye Talk. He says, as an out-of-state listener heading to Columbus next week, what is a must-have stop for us for food? We'll need a quick lunch recommendation and then a nicer spot for dinner. Tim, give Kev Carver your top five most romantic places for a dinner in Columbus. <laughs> I don't know about most romantic places. I mean, we've got we've had like romantic tip questions. I know you threw out the idea of me throwing out my top five romantic comedies, but he's just a romantic guy. I know. I'll I'll think I can just list off a couple places that's that are really good places to go. I mean, Thurman Cafe number one, obviously. Mm-hmm. Everybody, everybody that comes to Columbus knows about it. You know, they have the bur- they have great burgers. I think there's a son of Thurman's in Delaware, I believe, that I just heard about a couple weeks ago that I have not had the chance to go to. But I'm going to do my best to go to at some point. They have a giant burger called the Thurminator, which they have for the Arnold Festival every year, which, again, I wanted to go to this past spring but could not, um, which is, like, I think a third-pound burger and toppings, then another third-pound burger, three-quarter-pound burger, excuse me, and all kinds of stuff on there. So that's one. Uh, Pies and Pints, if you like pizza, they have an amazing beer selection. Um, all kinds on tap. Pizza's fantastic, I think. In my opinion, I know I'm not an East Coast pizza person, so I don't have... It's fine. Well... It's cutting triangles, which is the way the Lord intended, but it's it's fine. It's it, pretty good. It's New York style. It, New York style it's and New York, size... It's New York adjacent. In, flop, in floppiness and like... Yeah, I don't get into the flop. But... Okay. Yeah, it's like a... I don't know. They put a bunch of weird crap on there. It can be good. It's not, it doesn't taste bad. It's just not like... It's not the... It's not... We always get in this conversation, and like when Doug and I talk about good pizza, we're talking about like the average pizza from where we grew up being far better than the average pizza you get on Columbus that comes on a cracker. Um, Pies and Pints is a little more – it's not upscale, but it's like – it's got – you can get like Gouda and bacon and all kinds of stuff on your on your pizza. And it tastes good, but it's not, it's not the uh, traditional East Coast slice that I have in mind. My go-to with that is always like whatever I get on a pepper, pepperoni, bacon, whatever. I always have to get fr- fresh mozzarella on there. You, so you get like extra cheese on there. Extra cheese. Yeah, I'm an extra. I've become an extra cheese person. I used to not like extra cheese because I was just like pepperoni, or whatever. But extra cheese, very underrated pizza topping. It can, yeah, it can be. It can be. Yeah, uh, yeah I think all those places are good. Um, I was gonna also say hot chicken takeover. Yeah, hot be- chicken takeover will always be always is always a place that I suggest. Um, he wants a nicer spot for dinner. Um, Hubbard Grill, like the Short North, is good. Kind of, a, it's like a dimly lit. Kind of more upscale kind of joint. That's not super expensive, but it's like a good spot for a date. Mar- um, there's a bunch of places in, in Short North on High Street like that. Marcellus is another good one yeah. if you like Italian. Yeah. They got all kinds of different options like flatbreads, pastas, very low-lit setting as well. Pretty classy restaurant. That's where Tim takes all his dates. Okay. <laughs> Corey Hoffman, uh, Ohio transplant, uh, living in Michigan, sent in a bunch of things that were very complimentary of us and we appreciate that. Um, but he also – he then asked uh, quickly, is there any Ohio State recruit in the state of Michigan that has to go see this fall? Um, and he asked this before Ohio State got, got Dwan Mathis, so that's like an obvious one. But go watch Dwan Mathis, but I would pay more attention to his teammate, Justin Rogers, who's a five-star 2020 offensive lineman. He is currently rated the number 
one guard in the country and the number 13 overall player in the class. And I watched this kid at the opening camp that was in Maslin, Ohio, uh, a few or back in May. And he was awesome. He was really good, really impressive. Um, he's short, I think, for a tackle, which is where they had him playing in that camp. He's 6'4", 280. Um, but he's just a monster of a player who I think could play any spot on the offensive line. Um, he's high in Ohio State. Ohio State's high on him. I think he'll end up being in Ohio State's 2020 class. Um, but go to an Oak Park game and pay attention to while Mathis gets important, but watch Justin Rogers on the offensive line. Yeah, I'm like, he's def- I'm not from doing all the roundups and whatever we've done in the last few months, it's obvious there's a pretty good relationship between the two. It's just kind of, you know, when they can, when Rogers decides to pull the trigger and, Small aside, Ohio State did add another guard on Saturday, Luke mm-hmm. Whipler out of New Jersey. It's Whipler? Whipler. Whipler would be an unfortunate last name, so I'm glad it's Whipler. Uh, I'm, I'm saying it's Whipler. I might have the pronunciation slightly wrong, so if Luke is listening, feel free to correct me on your pronunciation. Won't be as good. And I take back what I said if it's Whipler. Yeah. Although, he's still not the best name in the class. The best name in the class, until proven otherwise, is Legend Cavazos. His dad put a lot of pressure on him naming him Legend. I respect it. Um, yeah, like this is going to be a really good offensive line. Like a really good is like insufficient way to describe it. But they have Paris Johnson and they have Luke Whipler. Um, Paris Johnson, a five-star. Whipler, a borderline five-star. Both top 100 players. And Justin Rogers is a five-star who I think is going to end up in the class too. Like this is shaping up to be the best offensive line haul Urban Meyer has had by a f- wide margin since he came to Ohio State and maybe ever. I, th- I haven't gone back and looked at his Florida classes. I know he had some really good ones there too. But uh, a threesome that includes Paris Johnson, Justin Rogers, and, and Luke Whipler, and, and who knows who else, um, will be pretty hard to top. Don't forget Jake Ray's well, well Max Ray's younger brother. Oh, yeah. I forgot about Jake Ray, the first commit in the yeah. class. Yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm interested in how he's going to play now moving over to Georgia because, you know, he played at Tennessee and moving over to the Georgia football, Marietta is going to be a step up for him. I think it'll be good for him. Playing with another top quarterback in Harrison Bailey. Yeah. Yeah. They have a, I think it's the circumstances of why he moved and you can read about it are kind of weird. Um, some stuff going on with the, with the head coach at his old school and like some injury stuff. But um, I think in the end, it, it could be good for him. I think any time they came up, I think, to transition quickly to basketball, Alonzo Gaffney, who's Ohio State's lone commitment in the 2019 recruiting class, is leaving Garfield Heights to go play at a prep school in New Hampshire. And people wonder, wonder like, what that could mean for him. And I don't think it has anything to do with – it won't have any bearing on his commitment to Ohio State. Um, at least it shouldn't. And – I certainly understand the sentiment of like wanting to see that kid in Ohio and, and playing in state and you can have a chance to go watch him play. Maybe he can be Ohio Mr. Basketball. Um, he's going to be playing with better players against better players, and I think that's good. And I think that's true for Jake Ray with his move to Marietta, Georgia, too. So I think maybe it'll be more difficult for him in high school, but I think the, in the long term it will benefit him. It's going to be good for his development the next two seasons <clears throat> as he heads into the final half of his high school career. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed this question. Uh Emailed in from James uh, Angel. He said, "How's a Bert from Tim?" Sorry. He said, "If you had to pick one, which head coaching job would you prefer? Michigan, and he says in parentheses, national title upside, tough division, lower floor, or Wisconsin? Twenty years and four head coaches of consistency, more Big Ten titles than Michigan in the past twenty years, easier division." Great question. Which job would you prefer, Tim? Michigan or Wisconsin? It's in Michigan. If the ultimate goal is to win a national title, you're going to have a better chance to do it in Michigan, although you have to go through Ohio State, Michigan State, and Penn State to get there. But 
Michigan's got that ceiling. It has that national reach. They can go pretty much anywhere they want if you have a if you have a quality recruiter and, and compete to get top quality players. You're at least going to be in that conversation because you get the brand, you get that block M, you got the maize and blue, the wing helmet. There's a brand there in Michigan that I think even as good as Wisconsin has been the last couple of years, um, I don't know if Wisconsin has that quite yet. I know their recruiting class right now is shaping up to be a monster for 2019 with Graham Mertz and Logan Brown, a five star offensive mm-hmm. tackle. So Paul Chris has done some great things, but I just it's hard to imagine them, you know, being a consistent national title contender. Michigan can get to Ohio State's level because it has been at Ohio State's level in the past, especially in the Bo Schembechler days. Yeah, I think I think I'd pick Michigan. It, it is it is a matter of preference. Um, certainly, I think you can have a little easier life at Wisconsin. The expectations aren't as high. Um, you can win. Ten games. If you can win ten games there every year, probably in that division, and people will be be okay with that, with the occasional competition for on a national stage, which I think is expected of them this year. But if Wisconsin doesn't win the national championship, people aren't going to be calling for Paul Chris' job. And if Michigan wins eight games, people will be calling for his job or for calling for Jim Harbaugh's job. So it's it's you're living in different worlds. But um, if the end game is competing for a national championship, having the kind of brand, uh, like Tim said, to expand out nationally and build your program into a national power, I just don't think Wisconsin can ever be that, and Michigan um, can. I'm not saying Michigan is that now, but the potential is there for Michigan to be that. It has been that in the past, and Wisconsin, I just don't think, can ever get there. Um, I think we're seeing what Wisconsin is right now, which will be a preseason top five team that some people have as a trendy playoff pick. Um, I think this is the best Wisconsin can ever be. And Michigan can be better than that. Michigan, I, with the right circumstances and right head coach, and I don't know if Jim Harbaugh's that guy or not, um, Michigan can be what Ohio State, Alabama, and Clemson are right now, and Wisconsin can. Ooh. A lot of questions. A lot of good questions. Yeah, these are some good ones. I'm, I'm liking this mailbag thing. I don't like how much I have to talk. I wish Doug was here. Um... Michael Enio tweeted in a question. He said, in your opinion, what's the most important thing Ohio State has in its favor from a recruiting standpoint? Players in the NFL, program culture, facilities, coaches slash urban factor, national titles, etc. Um, Ohio State has had a shift in its recruiting. And it's been good since Urban got here. And it was good before he got here with you know the exception of the 2011 class, which was a different thing. Um but it's on another another level and, and has taken a real turn even since 2017. And, and eight, 17 and 18 were two of the best the program's ever had. 19, I think, a dip. 20 might be the best ever. Um, there are a lot of things that go into that. But Michael's asking what we think is the most important thing. People talk a lot about Real Life Wednesdays and the setting up for life after football and all that stuff. And I buy it. Um, but I don't think it matters as much as putting guys in the NFL. Um Ohio State's facilities are good. A lot of people have really good facilities. Irvin Meyer is one of the greatest coaches ever, and that gives Ohio State a leg up over 98% of the programs in college football. But when you're talking about recruiting against like Nick Saban and Dabo Swinney, like, I, I don't know how much Urban being a legend matters all that much. I think what it comes down to is who puts guys in the NFL, who gets them to make a lot of money, and Ohio State is doing that as well, if not better than anyone else in the country right now. Um, so I think that ultimately is it. And I'll buy the culture stuff. I'll buy the Ohio State's bringing in good people stuff. I'll buy real life Wednesdays, but I don't think it, it matters as much as the NFL. 
I think it's it comes down to winning basically. If if you're not winning, you're not getting you're not even going to get your foot in the door. Like you mentioned, all the extra things that go into the facilities, the getting guys into the NFL again and again. I mean, how many top ten, top five picks has Ohio State had since Urban Meyer's been the head coach? But they haven't won. Like, oh, well, I shouldn't say that they've won. But he only has, he has, and I say only, he has one national championship here. He has one national championship and two Big Ten championships. It's not like they win the conference every year and have multiple national titles. Right. But, but you still think you think that? I mean, carries they, more weight with recruits than anything else. Well, even though they have, they've they have only gotten the two Big Ten titles. Urban's since Urban's been there in the one national title, they've won enough to always be in the national spotlight. They're always going to be there. You're not going to get guys unless you're successful. That's what gets you into the door. Everything else is like gravy on top. You know, got we've read like gravy. We gravy's good. Um, we've you know, getting guys in the NFL always helps. Coaching, culture, real life Wednesdays, those are bonuses. But if you're not winning, then you're not necessarily going to always be able to keep guys. You need to have guys want to come play for a winner, and that's why you usually see the Alabamas, the Clemsons, the Ohio States, the Georgias dominating recruiting because those are the teams that win and guys want to go play for winners. Yeah, I still think it's the NFL. Uh, Brock Doctor, quickly, what is the over-under of phone numbers in Urban Meyer's phone? Uh, A thousand? I want to know – I mean, he has to have separate phones for recruiting and like when his wife wants to call him about taking the garbage out. But I wonder if he deletes numbers from his recruiting phone or does he have like – some kid from 2012, they were recruiting and they didn't get. Is that number still in Urban Meyer's phone? And if if they are, then he's got 10,000 phone numbers in his phone. I'm buying the two-phone thing. I, the thing I wonder is I wonder if he has like an Apple Watch or something that's connected to, like you said, maybe his personal phone. So he knows all, always when Shelly or anybody's family is trying to reach him, his family has one number and then like he has the coaches, the players, the recruits all in another. That's probably like an 800 plus list uh phone book i probably only have like 50 60 numbers in my my two phones combined i'm bad at i have a lot i'm bad at keeping contacts list i have a lot of them that i never use who's the most famous person in your phone book um let me look i think mine's drew rosenhouse although i've never called him i have his phone number for some reason uh looking looking the answer was uh bill landis well i was gonna say doug because he has more followers than you that's true, but I'm more lovable. Um, you don't have to look it up. Okay. Uh, I like this email question we got from Corey Van Lindingham. She says, Hi, Doug, uh, Bill, Doug, and Tim. As someone who recently married into a Buckeye family, and then she says, My husband is a devout listener, and now I am too. I'm curious what your thoughts are on wedding food. Do you prefer buffet, plated? Does anyone even remember the food? And then she also says they love Doug's... Uh, Radio ain't to be relatable guy voice. She said it's hilarious. Um, I like that Buckeye Talk is bringing people together and and bringing more love into the world. And and I'm sure that Corey and, and Chris would not be married right now if it weren't not for Buckeye Talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, wedding food. I think people remember it only if it's bad. I don't remember like the best wedding food I've had, but I certainly remember weddings that the food I thought uh, was terrible. I prefer a buffet, but. I also have a gutter palate and would rather eat like chicken fingers than like a filet. So uh, I say buffet. Tim, do you prefer a buffet or a plated sit-down dinner at a wedding? I like the buffet. I feel like sometimes when you get plated food, sometimes the food is kind of stale. There's nothing really flashy or fancy about it. Yeah. With buffet food, you have there's a decent there's a better chance that the food will be fresh. And I think at a party or any occasion, you want fresh food that's as fresh as possible. 
Although I will say also, one your thoughts on this. Uh, my cousin got married about a year ago. Had like a huge big, mistake. Oh, sorry. Had, had a big uh, dessert buffet. What do you think about like a sweets buffet in addition to like a hot food buffet before the cake? Yeah, I'm not like a super. I'm not super in the sweets, which if you saw me would be surprising. Um, but that's not. Yeah, that's. I, I don't get excited about a dessert bar. Um, it's just not my thing. But I, I, I think it's good. I think it's good. I, I like variety. So anything that that introduces more variety into a food setting, I'm in favor of. Um, so I wouldn't go crazy for a dessert bar, but I think it's the right move because I think a buffet is the right move. What did you get at the dessert bar? Uh, they have like all kinds of cookies and pastries and whatever. Like I like, yeah, I like a good cookie spread. Yeah, like cookies, different things like that. Like have some fun with it. Go try something different. It's always good. Whoa, this guy sent in like a 400-word email. We can't do that today. We'll do it. <laughs> Brendan Lick, we got your email. Oh, yeah, I read this. It's really good. It's a really good uh, like theory about Jim Harbaugh that I would be, one, interested to get Doug's take on and two, just don't want to read the 400-word email. But we will talk about that because that was good. Um, Tyler Gleim sent in an email. He says, is it possible that Ohio State will lose out on another top Ohio prospect in back-to-back years? Talking about... Five-star defensive end, Zach Harrison uh, from Olin Tangi Orange. Orange. Which is two miles from my apartment. Two miles from where we sit in Tim's – this is a dining room, right? Uh, dining room, Eden yes. Kitchen. Um, is it possible that the Ohio State can lose it on Zach Harrison? Uh, yeah, I think it's possible. Um, talk to Zach Harrison at the opening and – I appreciated sort of how candid he was in saying that he went on official visits to Michigan and Ohio State and came out of that more confused than than he was when he went into it. And I believed him. I don't. I don't think that he's the kind of kid who would say that like just to say it. Um, so I, I I would put some stock in it. Uh, I don't think ultimately that that Penn State is a player anymore. I think it's either he said they are, but I think it's either Michigan or Ohio State. And there's some interesting thing, interesting things going on. I, I think Ohio State has done a fine job recruiting Zach Harrison and has been aggressive or as aggressive as Zach will let them be, has pushed all the right buttons. And, and I've written before about how he's a different kind of kid and, and values maybe different things than the typical recruit might. And I don't think Ohio State has, has strayed from harping on the things that would be important to Zach Harrison and his family. Um, but I do think the idea of leaving Ohio and sort of like going out on his own, forging his own path, being outside of a bubble that is Columbus. And it can feel like a bubble at times, especially for someone who's from here. I think that on some level is intriguing to him and maybe gives Michigan uh, a little bit of a bump that maybe I wouldn't have considered a few months ago. I still think he's going to go to Ohio State. I wouldn't be all that fearful that he would pick somewhere else. Um and I don't think it's a Zach or Jackson Carmen type. Jackson Carmen was uh, different for other reasons, and I think like woke up the morning of his commitment and was like, you know what, I'm going to do something weird. Because um, everybody thought he was picking Ohio State when when they when we got up that morning, and then he put on a Clemson hat, and the world exploded. Um, I don't think Zach Harrison is going to make, and not to say that Jackson Carmen made his decision lately, but I just think Zach Harrison has been processing a lot more information maybe than Jackson Carmen was. I think in the end, Jackson Carmen just came down to, he wanted to be different and go somewhere else. I think Zach Harrison is a little more pragmatic than that. Um, and I think, I think he'll go to Ohio state. Um, but 
I would leave the door open, and the question was, is it possible that Ohio State loses him? Yes, it's possible. Percentage chance, maybe like 15%, and maybe that's high. Um, 85% chance, I think, they still go to Ohio State. But, you know, if you want to prepare yourself for a doomsday scenario in which Ohio State loses a top player in the state in back-to-back years, and this time to Michigan, which is a whole different thing than losing a kid to Clemson, I think it's possible. Yeah, when you, when you said when you were talking about Zach Harrison saying he's got, he's he was confused, had a lot to think about. That means that Ohio State and Michigan both like both must have done pretty good jobs giving him a lot to think about. Yeah, he said. I mean, he said there were good things and bad things about each visit without getting into specifics. Um, but yeah, I think they I think they did. I think it's like it's a cliche sort of thing to say that relationships matter and. It was like I couldn't I couldn't really pin him down on this, but it was he said I said, Do you have better relationships with players, not coaches, with players at Michigan than you do at Ohio State? And he said, Not necessarily better, but it's different. Um and he said different in a way that lead me led me to believe that I think he likes the nature of his relationships with some of the players at Michigan, maybe a little more than he does the players at Ohio State and um I maybe that that could be enough to swing things in Michigan's favor. He also loves Larry Johnson and said that Larry Johnson is the best defensive line coach in the country and maybe ever. And I think that matters to Zach because he is for being a five-star kid and being the freak athlete that he is, he is still quite raw as a football player. And there's a lot of good that Larry Johnson can do for him at Ohio state. And I think that matters too. And I think in the end, that's, that might be what matters most, which is why I still like Ohio state. Um, but he does like Michigan, and he does like the people at Michigan, and I think it's an intriguing option for him. So would I be floored if he picked Michigan? No, but I'd still be pretty surprised because I do think and have thought for a while that it's going to be Ohio State. Dustin Kerr sent in an email, and we got two of these questions. So we'll, we'll package them together. He said, well, Dobbins, Mike Webb, Mike Wobbins. I was going to say Mike Wobbins. <laughs> Will J.K. Dobbins and Mike Weber's yards per carry increase or suffer next season with Dwayne Haskins at quarterback instead of J.T.? Defenses will likely back off more to respect Haskins' big arm, but will also be less fooled when the QB and running back mesh during a read option. Basically, how will having a more pro-style quarterback affect the efficiency of the running backs? Tim, go first. I think it'll go up because, in theory... You think the yards per carry will go up? Yeah, okay. maybe just a little bit, but I think it will have an impact. Because in theory, if you have a pro-style quarterback like Haskins who could throw the ball down the field, that leads to bigger plays, shorter drives, less opportunities for the running backs. And if, you know, like he, like he brought up a good point, you know, defenses will be willing to back off because they respect Haskins' arm a little more. That opens room for Dobbins and Weber to get to the second level and beat defenders their own unique ways. So there, there could be... Um, definitely more opportunities to break off some bigger runs. I think it's going to be a more explosive offense because you have that ability to open up the field in those two different fashions. So J.K. Dobbins averaged 7.2 yards per carry. Mike Weber averaged 6.2. Um, Dobbins was number 14 in the country in yards per carry, and Weber was... Number 40. So they were both in the top 40 in the country in yards per carry. That's pretty good. Um, improving on that with two guys, I think, is, I mean, it's not an easy thing. But I think I do agree with you, Tim. I, I, I would be more inclined to say it's going to go up than I would say it was, it's going to go down. And I thought um, Dustin made some good points with this question about, you know, the read game being confusing and, and opening up more options. I, I think ultimately what we're going to see from Ohio State's offense is it's going to be a little 
more difficult to kind of predict what they're going to do um, because the quarterback run will not be the crutch it's been in the past. Um, and I think Dwayne Haskins' arm will open more things up than they will close them for the running back. So I'll say it'll go up just as a, as a way of saying that, that I don't think Haskins' lesser running ability from JT Barrett is going to have a negative impact on the, on the production of the running backs. I think it will actually have a positive impact. Um, so I'll say that both their yards for carries will go up or at the very least stay around the same. I don't think you're going to see a drop. Rory Allenson in the basketball question. And when I put out the call for questions, I did include basketball. We only got like two. So I don't want to drop in two random basketball questions. But I will do a basketball podcast some here, sometime in the not-too-distant future. Maybe before they head to – they're going to Spain at the beginning of August. Um, so maybe either before that or right after they get back, um, I'll do a basketball podcast. So thank you for the basketball question, Corey. Or, yeah, that's who sent it. Rory. I'll save it and we'll get, we'll get to it later. Let's go back to Twitter. Walter Hickman, best movie couple, Hanks Griffin or Sandler Barrymore? It's a generational question, I think. My answer would be Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore, only because I've seen more movies with them in it. And Fifty First Date, Fifty First Dates, is a classic film. So that's my answer. Yeah, I agree. I I was leaning against that because I don't respect Adam Sandler's film choices anymore. But I do think Fifty First Dates is probably his last really good film. Like. It was a movie that had heart. He tried, and I thought Drew Barrymore was uh, genuinely charming in the movie. Plus, there's some fun, you know, side characters in it. I do like. There's some good chemistry there between Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore, which is why you see them in multiple movies together. I also think he meant Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. Um, he from, said he said Griffin, but I'm pretty sure he meant Meg Ryan. Yeah, from You Got Mail. Yeah, and like Sleepless in Seattle and that stuff. Um, I've I'm I've never seen any of those movies which might be blasphemous to some people, but uh, my answer is Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore with the admission that is a, that is a generational thing or generational preference. Uh, Jordan Steele asked on Twitter, over under eight games where the commentators bring up Kendall Sheffield's 40 time. I'm taking the over because I think every time he makes a play in a game, they're going to bring it up. And there are at least 12 games. I'm going to say under because Gus Johnson is not going to call every game, all 13 games of Ohio State schedule, including a Big Ten title game, which means less chance for Gus Johnson to say. And there's that man with that four three sub four three forty breaking up that pass, Kendall Sheffield. I think that whoever the color analyst is every week is going to have that in his notes next to Kendall Sheffield's name. Runs a sub for whatever whatever he ran, a four whatever. Um, and then mentioned that that he was a sprinter for the track team. Um, yeah, you're going to hear it every game. The I'm question, taking you over. The question is, are you more likely to hear it for good plays or on a bad play when he gets burned? He's like, he burned a, a corner who ran yeah, a sub Yeah, well, that's part of it. Yeah, I think, you're, I think you're just as likely to hear it in either scenario. I, did, I, I literally didn't think of that until you just said it, so I almost want to change my answer. You are allowed to change your answer. So I will say over, even though how, how often does speed really get mentioned by color commentary? And since we're at the games, we don't listen to the commentary, so we would need someone to tell us when that happens. Yes. Someone keep a tracker um, and let us know. But I'm taking the over, and I'll say it'll happen in every game. We're going to have to de- de- uh, deputize Jordan Steele to do that for us. <laughs> Buckeye Talk Deputy Jordan Steele. That's your new role, Jordan. You have, to t- you have to tweet at us every time they mention Kendall Sheffield's 40 time. Derek Oswald tweeted in a question. He said, what's one movie that you own slash have to watch if it's on that you wouldn't let, quote, the guys know you watch? Tim, what girly movies do you watch? (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, I don't think this has only ever been on television. I think once or twice in my life, but it's Troll Two. Troll Two, w- one of the epic B movies of all time. It's yeah, a, I don't think he. Ha- well, uh, but that's like a. Well, I'm embarrassed to tell. I actually never mind. I'm not embarrassed to tell people I like them. That's like a scary movie. It's meant to be scary, but it's utterly hilarious because it, it's. We had a discussion before this about the room, a clip that I tweeted in, right? Tweeted out right after. Bill put out the call for questions. He was asking for romantic comedies. I'm like, spoiler, here's an honorable mention, and it's a clip from The Room. Awful movie. Don't watch it. If you like bad movies, enjoy it. I called it a romantic... It fits in the technical term of romantic comedy because it's meant to be a romantic drama, but it ends up being a black comedy. It ends up being a piece of crap. Well, our opinion on B-movies is very different. Um, That's not a B-movie. That's an F-movie. That's a Z-movie. Well, it's a movie that a they... A B-movie is like you don't mess with a Zohan. That's not... The Room is not a B-movie. But anyway, I think the question was more along the lines of, like, do you watch uh, Grease every time it comes on? I don't know. Um, Something like that. Not some not some scary movie. Is there is there a movie that, quote, men aren't supposed to watch that you watch every time it comes on? I don't think there's, like, a specific movie like that. I mean, I've seen 2012 multiple times, even though I think it's a terrible movie. Because the Again, story- you're not. My answer is uh, I have a lot because I watch a lot of chick flicks. Uh, but Ten Things I Hate About You might be my favorite movie, and I don't think that I'm the intended audience for that movie. Um, and it's a modern day version of Taming of the Shrew, I believe. And it's just like an angsty teenage girl movie for the most part. But there's definitely male characters who who help drive the plot too. Um, but I don't think a I'm now a 29 year old man, quote unquote adult, and I love that movie. I watch it every time it's on. I own it. I watch it at random times. Um, I'm not ashamed to say that I love that movie, but I think that would fall into the category of, of what the question was. So that's my answer. Bill Feeman emailed a question in football questions. Back to football. He said, and "This is long, so bear with me." It's about linebackers. I heard someone make a comment that Baron Browning is an outside linebacker who could play inside. But doing so may be more like having Chris Worley play inside linebacker last season. Is this why the team seems to be so strongly hoping that Borland, tough Borland, can play quickly coming off his Achilles injury? And then he says, this is his take on Borland. Borland was an incomplete linebacker when 100% healthy and came off in passing situations. Is Browning just not as good as projected? Is he really an outside linebacker and playing him inside linebacker is using is misusing his talent? Just don't understand why Borland seems to be so missed. Even when healthy, it seems like he should be the odd man out based on talent alone. There's a lot to unpack there. First of all, I will say, because you guys talked about tough Borland last week in, in regards to our top 50 list um, and where he was ranked. He's not on the list. Um, I think that you might have said that he is on the list down a little further. He's not. I didn't put him on there because I don't think he's going to play next year. Um, I don't think an Achilles injury is something you come back from quickly. And Urban Meyer like described Tough Borland in the same way he described JT Barrett that like these are tough guys who overcome injuries quickly quicker than a normal person. That's great. Achilles injury is not something that's just sort of easy to like blow off and and get over so quickly. And they targeted September. Um, I don't think it's impossible that he came back, but I didn't put Tough Borland on the list because I don't think he's going to play. And maybe I'm wrong, um, but I just think he's going to miss the whole year. Side note, I, this it's actually kind of funny you mentioned Tough Borland and the Achilles. I just saw a tweet right now from uh, Tom Haberstroh, who's an NBA analytics guy. He did some research saying the average recovery time from an Achilles tear in the NBA is 9.8 months. Not saying it was a tear, 
but that gives you an idea that it's not an ACL. That it takes a long, it takes almost a full calendar year to come back from a very significant Achilles injury. Yeah, and there's no, I don't think there's any. I, I guess what the point of this question is, I don't, I don't know if there's necessarily a reason to rush Tough Borland back. I do think what they like about Tough Borland is that while he is a guy they took off the field in passing situations, and I think that's a good, good observation. Um, like being able to call the defense matters. Being able to put guys in position and see the field, all that matters. And I do think he's a good run defender. I think he's a smart player. And I think that's the value that Tough Borland brings. And you will miss that without him out there. And I don't know who the guy is who can kind of step in and fill that role. I don't think it's Byron Browning, um, at least not yet. Maybe it's Justin Hilliard. Maybe it's Pete Werner who could maybe slide in and play middle linebacker. Um, But I think the way we talk about Browning to, to, to get to the heart of Bill's question is we just think he's so good that he has to be on the field, whether that's inside or outside. I think he has the versatility to do both um, and can stay on the field when you go to nickel and take one of those linebackers off the field. He's just such a dynamic athlete that we think he has to be on the field. So that's why we talk about him being an outside linebacker who can play inside or just a guy who can play all three linebacker spots. Um, and he says, I don't understand why Borland seems to be so missed. I, I think it's what I said. I just I think he's... He's like a like as much as a cliche as quarterback of the defense can be. I think he very much filled that role for them last year. They had a hard time like getting guys lined up, which is a problem, obviously. And, and I think it's it's more about the linebackers coach than it is maybe about the players. But they had problems getting guys lined up, getting the right guys out there. And once they got Tough Borland out there at middle linebacker and had Jerome Baker and Chris Worley on the outside, it just seemed like they had a little more structure to the defense. Um, so I think that's what Tough Borland brings, but but I do agree that maybe he's not as dynamic of a player as someone like Baron Browning or maybe Keandre Jones um, or maybe even Pete Werner. But I do think there's an importance that Tough Borland brings to the defense. Linebacker is going to be the position I'd really have my eye on the most, especially on the defense, because I I look at it, you got four guys essentially playing for three spots. I think the guy who's most settled into a starting spot in my mind is Malik Harrison. Um, but I, the reason I say only Malik Harrison is because Browning can go inside and outside. He's more of an out, inside linebacker that can play outside if needed, whereas Justin Hilliard seems more strictly inside and Keandre Jones is strictly outside. Yeah. And even if Browning doesn't win the job, we had him, we had him highest because he can play anywhere and he'll play in some capacity, um, with regards to just handling that spot and, Whatever rotation it is, I'm curious how they're going to use him because I expect they'll use him a lot. And the other thing I'm thinking is, I know he didn't play a lot this year. I wonder how much you know his injury in the spring last year kind of affected him a little bit because because he had a I believe it was a torn labrum that kept him out until like kept him out for most of the spring. I wonder how much that kind of impacted him a little bit. Yeah, I don't know. I, this sort of this segues nicely into a question we got from Jacob Diefenthaler. Uh, via email, he said, who do you predict will be the three starting linebackers for the Oregon State game, and will they be the same three when Ohio State plays Michigan? Which is good, because the three linebackers started last year were not the three who started against Michigan. Uh, My prediction for the three starters against Oregon Oregon State will be uh, Baron Browning, Malik Harrison, and... I'm like tempted to say Pete Werner. Okay, I'm going to say Baron Browning, Malik Harrison, and Keandre Jones, but that by the end of the year, Pete Werner will be starting at outside linebacker, so I don't think it'll be the same. I'm thinking Hilliard in the middle with Browning and Harrison on the outsides, and, you know, I was talking about 
when last week when I was talking about Pete Warner and how the more I wrote about him, the more I was kind of intrigued by him. He seem he does seem like a guy that if he has opportunities on special teams with a new kickoff rule to make an impact and in certain rotation situations, a guy that will force his way in. I wonder. I also wonder what kind of opportunities Justin Hillier will be given. You know, really his first season healthy this fall. Yeah, I think it's it, it is. I think I agree with you. It is maybe the most interesting position. Well, not the most interesting position, but maybe the most interesting sort of battle to watch in the spring is how that all shakes out. Sorry, we got uh, information that I will share at the end of the podcast. Uh, that is good, and I think you'll be thankful to get it. Um, so, but it threw me off a little bit. Um, Kelvin Corbin sent in a question. He said, what are three essential Ohio foods besides Buckeyes? And I'm not from Ohio. Doug's not here, but he's also not from Ohio. Tim Bielek is born and bred Ohio. What are three essential Ohio foods? Well, the one one food I'll say, even though we've had our debates on if it's actually good or not, is Skyline Chili because it's from Ohio. It's one of the foods you think of when you think of Ohio is you think of Skyline Chili. It depends on how you feel about, um, you know, spaghetti chili and shredded cheese on top. I, that's all opinion-based. Are there the, – the words spaghetti and chili next to each other just doesn't feel right. No, it, it's it's an Ohio thing, I think. It's a weird thing. Yeah, another yeah. one um, – jeez, I don't even know if I can – what I can get to with three. I know Ohio, Ohio really is interesting because it seems like, especially in Cleveland, especially – like Cleveland and Columbus, there's a lot of blending of cultures in there. You know, yeah. Cleveland's got a lot of Eastern Europeans, so you're gonna see a lot of pierogies up there. Um, yeah, there's a lot. What do they call? What's the the donut things? Punchkeys. Punchkeys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are good. Is that an Ohio thing? Uh, I, or is that just a Polish thing? I'm guessing that's a Polish thing because I feel like I've heard of that outside of there. There's like a sandwich, I guess, in Cleveland, like called the Polish Boy. That they've had in Cleveland at a at a place that closed down in Cleveland called Hot Sauce Williams. I know they have it. A couple oh yeah, of I always wanted to go to Hot Sauce Williams. Yeah, I it was right by uh, the Cleveland Clinic. I just used to drive. It's a, every time I used to go downtown. I it think closed. It was, That's sad. Yeah, I think it's on. Che- it was on Chester Avenue. It yeah. looked like an old Bob Evans. I always wanted to go there, driving up to the downtown Cleveland Clinic, and now it's gone, and it makes me very sad. I think the pe- like the pizza is a thing, right? As much as I trash it and don't think it's good, I think there is is there like is the the style of pizza that you get here in Columbus, Tim? Is that is that an Ohio style of pizza? Is that a Midwest style of pizza, or is that specific to Columbus? I think that's more Midwest. Okay. Honestly, in Cleveland, other than Donato's, I never could think of a place where they really had it. It seems like it's just um, a like a. Like a Midwest thing, like depending on where you go, I think St. Louis might be similar pizza yeah, style. Yeah. So maybe those two are more similar than that. Cleveland's also where Melt Bar and Grill started. And I, I know the grilled cheese sandwich is not unique, but the grilled cheese sandwich, which you can throw a ton of toppings in there. I yeah, it's not really a grilled cheese. Right. Like you can get one there that's just bread and cheese. But yeah, I get like the wet hot buffalo chicken and that's not at all a grilled cheese sandwich, but it is very good. Right. And there's a place in Cincinnati called started up in Cincinnati called Tom and Chi, very similar. Uh-huh. It's more fast casual than a sit down restaurant, but they have like grilled cheese donuts. They're on Shark Tank. Yeah, they're which on, I've been binge watching like a crazy person lately. They're on Man vs. Food too at one point. So and it was a place that opened up in Cleveland. I think they moved their location from Strongsville to Brexville, I believe, if I remember right. So it would have been closer to my old apartment, which is in North Royalton. 
So I would have still been if I still if I went on this beat, I'd still be in driving distance to a Tom and Chi. But if you're up in Cleveland or Cincinnati and you haven't gone there, I recommend a very good grilled cheese, and they they do have some different options. So three essential Ohio foods are Skyline Chili and then 15 other things. Uh, David McMahon sent in an email. He says, if Ryan Day leaves after the 2018 season, do you think the 2020 quarterback Jack Miller will decommit? Um, man, that's very doom and gloom. The kid just committed. Now you want to know if he's going to decommit? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, I, I think that Jack Miller has a really good relationship with Ryan Day, and Ryan Day offered Jack Miller as a freshman, which I had forgotten about. I like I asked Jack Miller, like, what's your relationship like with Ryan Day? Because I know he wasn't the one who offered you, and Jack Miller was like, yeah, he was. Um, I got my like timeline mixed up a little bit and felt like a jackass for 30 seconds. Um, but Ryan Day has been in with Jack Miller's recruitment the whole way, but, but I do think that it was more about Urban Meyer than it was about Jack Miller. If Urban Meyer leaves before Jack Miller gets here, um, I would worry about him decommitting, but I would worry about everyone decommitting. Uh, I don't know. I don't think if Ryan Day were to leave, that automatically means Jack Miller decommits. Um, who they hire would matter, obviously, as it would for any position. Um, but I don't think Miller is tied to Day the way that maybe like Matthew Baldwin would be. Um, I think that was all Ryan Day. And like Ryan Day, I think, had to do some lobbying to get Matthew Baldwin and convince Urban Meyer that he was the right guy. Um, so I would wonder what that would mean for Matthew Baldwin, although Matthew Baldwin did say like he knows that Ryan Day is a hot coaching name. He knows that it's possible that Ryan Day could not be here. Um, it almost worked out that Ryan Day was so in, so involved in the recruitment and then wasn't going to be here at all because we thought maybe he was going to go back to the NFL or maybe he got offered reportedly offered the Mississippi State head coaching job. Uh, so he's a hot name. I, I don't anticipate he'll be here. He's a three-year contract extension. I would be pretty surprised if he saw that through. Um, but I think he could stay for two more years. And he has built-in incentives, retention bonuses in his contract um, to keep him here. To And they're they're pretty hefty. I think they're like $300,000 extra he would get each year if he stayed here. Um, so Ohio State wants to keep Ryan Day. Now, a head coaching job would obviously be enticing, and I think he could take one after the season depending on how good the offense is. But I don't think that Jack Miller is so tied to Ryan Day that Ryan Day leaving would automatically mean that Jack Miller decommits. Um, I think Jack Miller is more tied to Urban Meyer than he is tied to Ryan Day. You mentioned this in your story of what it means uh, for Jack Miller and Doug talked about last week also. The sunset, the Scottsdale Princess, mm-hmm. and that's Urban Meyer and the Miller family. So that that alone kind of tips me off to, you know, the, the relationship that those two, that Miller and Day seem to have, I think it, it's just as good with Urban Meyer. So it's his fate, although it seems like he'd be, I, we talked about it last week. I don't think there's a guy that in the 2020 class at the moment doesn't look, looks anything but secure. But yeah, no, I think I think they're all like I think it's hard in general to keep Florida guys and Legend Cavazos plays in Florida, but he's actually from Texas and his dad has a really good relationship with Urban. I wouldn't be nervous about that. I think like every yeah, I think and you have Parrish Johnson's from Ohio, Jake Ray, whose brother goes here, goes to Ohio State, and Jack Miller. Um, and Paris Johnson also said when he's committed, he, yeah, he, he's, he tweeted days before his commitment, he's not gonna play like he's gonna shut it down essentially. After he makes his decision. Right. Which, again, I, I said last week, I'm still surprised it happened as early as it did. I expect that to go much longer than it did. Alex Dale emailed a question in. Um, Tim, do you have strong takes on Ohio State's uniforms? Uh, I have strong takes with people who 
who hate the alternate jerseys. Well, he wants to know why Ohio State refuses to make their gray sleeve uniforms the permanent ones. I think they're like the 19 whatever, like the 68, I think, throwbacks that they wore for the college football playoff. He wants those to be the permanent ones, and he wonders why they got rid of them in the first place. I love those jerseys. I, I think both the home and away version of that jersey is better than the one that Ohio State wears currently. Um, so I would be much in favor of making those the permanent jerseys. What do you think? I like the gray stripes. I, my brother has an old Michael Wiley jersey from, I believe, 1997. How's that for a throwback for you? Yeah. Remember number five, Michael Wiley, from way back in the day. I don't remember exactly when they changed they got rid of the gray stripe. I rem- I think it, it was definitely around 2006 because after Ohio State lost back-to-back title games to Florida and LSU, people were saying it's because of the gray stripes. You know, ever since they got the gray stripes th- taken off their curse or whatever, I'm like, no, that is not at all what it was. But I do agree they need to bring the gray back. I think they did that for what was it the 2012 alternates they wore against Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, again, the title game jerseys they they fixed they've used gray a lot in their alternates. And I think they were also a main color in the blackout jerseys of uh, 2015. They used them at, for Penn State in 2017. They're still there. I would love them to be back. But, I mean, some, like it's a subtle tweak that I think people didn't realize was a problem until all of a sudden, you know, people were looking for like a superficial reason why Ohio State lost back-to-back title games, and they pointed to the gray stripes. Do you have a favorite Ohio State jersey? Um, Like... Just in general? Yeah, whether it be the traditional ones they wear now or, or one of the throwbacks they've worn over the years or one of the alternates they've worn over the years. I do like the ones they wore in 2012 for the the alternates they wore in 2012. I think it was like with the shiny helmets. It was kind of like the new age Ohio oh, State. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I remember those. Those were, those were great. I love the blackout jerseys in 2015 because I'm, I would love to see more of that. Like I like when the Cavs did the blackouts with the black jerseys and the black shirts for the playoff games. I just think it's a cool look, and it's a nice change-up to the whiteouts you always see, although we're going to see a whiteout this season in Happy Valley. It's, I don't think it's official, but it seems like a guarantee that's what we're going to get. Yeah, it will be. Yeah, it'll, it's always, it always is. It'll be the whiteout game um, for sure. Uh, I like, and I'm just looking at a list because uh, I didn't know what year these were, the ones they wore 20, 2009 and 2010 back-to-back against Michigan. 09s were great. I think that was the fir- that was the first year, I believe, of the Pro Combats. And I was actually there. They did a presentation at the Newport Music Hall, and I think Eddie George was there. Oh, really? Yeah, I believe I believe it was Eddie George who was there. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I like white helmets. Yeah, that that was a very cool, clean look. I'm like. It, it was kind of a surprise because Ohio State was always considered traditional back in those days. Jim Trestle rarely ever did anything with flash, and I think that that was kind of a criticism I had towards the end. It was like, you could use a little flash sometimes. Yeah. But then they started doing the alternates every year, and that was, I think, one that like you saw that, and you're like, that's really cool. I did not like the 2011 jerseys. I thought those were, the ones they wore against Wisconsin are my least favorite alternates. Yeah, they're ugly. I don't like those either. Um, no, I like the, the 2009 and 2010. Uh, I like the white ones they wore last year, but again, and I've said this before, I, I'm not a proponent of wearing them against Michigan. I do think that Ohio State and Michigan should wear their home jerseys when they play each other. Um, but there's too much money to be made, so they won't do that. Um, okay, here's a question that is going to make me angry about the podcast you guys did last week. Uh, Taylor Van Winkle, great name, says... Uh, Long-time listener, first time interacting with the podcast. First and foremost, how could you and Tari, combination Tim and Ari, get the top 50 so wrong? 
Doug was essentially Iron Mike Tyson in his prime, and your rankings were a blind 10-year-old with his arms tied behind his back, just going to town on them in ranty fashion that only Doug and George Carlin could achieve. Um, here's the thing about those rankings. They're supposed to be a collaborative effort, and they weren't. I made up the whole top 50. I sent it to Tim. Tim says, yeah, change like one thing. And Doug didn't do anything. So uh, I was in the car angry because they were trying to get to the logic of a list that really neither one of you had a hand in putting together. And it was all me. And I would have loved some help, but I didn't get any. I liked your list. I, I told you. I thought it was good. Yeah, but I think you were just being agreeable. Okay, well, to be fair, I am sometimes an agreeable person. Yeah, and which, I is just not did a bad, right. which is not a bad habit to have, I think, in general throughout life. And I just did it right there. Um, and I went to bat for you a lot, too. I, again, I appreciate that, even though... And I can't remember specific examples. The reasoning you gave for why I rank guys where is not the reasoning I have for putting them where I put them. Anyway, um, yeah, that was my list, and I didn't have any help putting it together. Uh, so if you have qualms with it, send them my way. But know that what was supposed to be a collaborative effort ended up not being one. And I felt like I was a little hung out the dry last week on the podcast. That's all I'm saying. Could have been a little more supported. I'm know? waiting for next week when you, when Doug comes back and then I just sit back in the corner and just... But the only one was that I thought, like, Sean Wade should have been, like, being higher than Marcus Williamson, I think is a fine point. Um... Like Sean Wade didn't play, and I know he didn't play because he was injured, and I think you can only like you can only project so much. And I don't know how comfortable I was putting a guy who like didn't play at all, like up near the twenties where Doug wanted him. Yeah, um, I, I think about thirty six was when we started to get guys that we saw more than just the occasional handful of snaps. Yeah. So anyway, uh, second part of his question, he says uh, Taylor Van Winkle again. Says, does Ohio State have a better chance to win a national championship if there are more or less than five new starters on each side of the ball? He says, essentially, I'm wondering if you think new blood un unhinging. If you think new blood unhinging some returning starters gives Ohio State a better chance to go to distance, all the best, Taylor from Winkle. Um, I do, yeah, I do think that that is. The best recipe for a national championship team is like a handful of incumbent guys because you need that kind of leadership, but then like a bunch of new blood, like what Ohio State had in 2014 with the 2013 recruiting class, a bunch of sophomores being the, the, the strength of that roster, but then you had a bunch of really good seniors who were the leaders of the team, and I think you need that, but the talent was young, and I do think that that is probably the best recipe for a national title team. I think Ohio State has a lot of that this year. With not a ton of guys back, that 2017 recruiting class in its second year, the 2018 recruiting class, which is strong as freshmen. Um, so I think that you're trending more in that direction with this current Ohio State roster. And I do think that that is not always, this isn't always the case because the 2015 Ohio State team had everybody back and they were great. They just didn't get it done, but that was a great team. Um, but I think I would rather, in general, have a team like you had in 2014 with a bunch of young, hungry guys who sort of like don't know any better but to just play hard and be great and be a really tough team to beat. And I think you might have that with this Ohio State roster in 2017 or 2018, excuse me. Yeah, and I think this I think this fall is going to be interesting in that aspect because I always feel like the second year of a recruiting class is when you really see, start to see those guys show how good they are. I mean, if you get guys that contribute right away as freshmen, that's an incredible bonus. You shouldn't expect that no matter who you are. 
but when you when you get in that second year, when guys have at least one extra full spring and a winter and a summer under their belt, that's when you should see, see guys start to emerge. And a lot of guys that are pretty high up on the list, guys like Chase Young, Jeff Okuda, Baron Browning, J.K. Dobbins, you know, those are all guys from 2017 that you're asking that you're counting a lot on. In 2016, there's high high level guys who are contributing as well. We we mentioned Nick Bosa, Jonathan Cooper, Keandre Jones, Malik Harrison, Jordan Fuller is another one. The, this is kind of the year when you start to see those seeds from the, these great recruiting classes really start to percolate their way onto the depth chart. Question from Doug DeLillo for Tim. Yes. He says, in honor of Tim's relatively cold take, I want him to tell me who the last five copies of NCAA football would have had on the cover since it would have been released today. We're recording this on July 10th. Um. Well, 2019... Oh, man, 2019. Saquon Barkley would be this year's. 100%. 20, 20, NCAA 18, Deshaun Watson. Yep. 2017, that's a hard one. I'm trying to think, like, maybe Zeke for 2016, for NCAA 2017. I'd buy that. 2016. Um, Come up with 2015 season. 2016, I would say Mariota. No, Mariota's last year was 2014. No, I'm saying NCAA 16 would have come out in 2015. This year would have been NCAA 19. We're talking about the cover athlete for NCAA 2016 would have been someone who played their final year in the 2015 season, correct? Um, I I believe I, I thought I saw it was like NCAA 2019. They're usually a year ahead because this. I'm. Let me go backwards on this. This year's would have been Saquon Barkley. Yeah. Last year, Deshaun Watson. The year before. Zeke Elliott. Yeah. The year before that, uh, Marcus Mariota. Okay, is that four? Yes. And One then, more. And then the year before that, uh, I'm trying to think. It wouldn't have been Jameis Winston because he was still in school one more season. Um, processing, processing. I'm trying to remember the number one. Oh, Jadavian Clowney. Yeah, I think I think those are all good picks. I was trying to think in my head who was the number one pick in that draft. I'm like, oh yeah, Jadavian Clowney. I almost forgot about him. I think I agree with all those. I do miss the game. I would love to see what it would look look like on Xbox One, like which yeah. I have, and I miss it too. I think we all do, and I know there's a guy who on YouTube wanted to create like a fake college football dynasty, the U- UGF Panther, UGF Pandas. <laughs> I enjoy that. It's a fun segment. Like, they played Ohio State, and I think it's like Ross, Ross from last season, they lost that game like 58-7, to, 58 to 7, I think. DeLillo also asked, beef jerky, in or out? I'm in. Out. He's out. Shocker, DeLillo and Tim disagree again. <laughs> uh, we already got a question from Bill Feeman. We'll save that one. Um... Andrew Bainan says, what's the best case and worst case scenario for Dwayne Haskins this year? Um, like, I like best case scenario, I think, is Dwayne Haskins flirts with the Heisman Trophy, just because I think the offense around him is talented enough that he'll put up some pretty crazy numbers if, like, he is at the, at the top end of his potential in his first year as a starter. I don't think he'll quite be that, but if that's, we want to talk best case scenario, I think that that is, is out there on the fringes and can be best case scenario. Worst case scenario for me is, like, He's very talented and has a great arm, and we know all that. But it's just like kind of inconsistent. Like I don't, I don't think he'll be bad. And Doug asked this question a couple weeks ago. Like, what if Dwayne Haskins is like just okay? 
And I don't even know if that's really out there just because the offense, like, I just think this, the way the offense operates and the players around him can allow any quarterback to be better than just okay. It's just a matter of how Dwayne Haskins, like, handles the weight of all this. And I just don't think he's going to be rattled by any of it. Um, playing at Happy Valley at Penn State in September is going to be tough. And it's a, a different thing, I think, than even playing in the Michigan game for all the Michigan game carries with it. I just, like, Penn State's a tougher place to play than the big house. Um, so I'm I'm curious how he handles that because that's just something he's never seen before. Um, but short of that, I don't think the moment's going to be too big for him. I think he's talented enough um, to be uh, productive, even if there's some some growing pain. So, like, best case scenario in my mind is that he flirts with the Heisman Trophy. He's in that conversation. Worst case scenario is that like he's like a little inconsistent and isn't quite ready to handle managing a game in Beaver Stadium when like Ohio State loses that game. Um, which isn't the end of the world. We've seen you can bounce back from a loss, um, especially if it's just one loss. But I, I do think that scenario is out there where, like, Dwayne Haskins is really good, and you can kind of see it in the first three games, but that game at Penn State is just a little too much for a guy to handle that early in his career, and Ohio State loses because of it. Best-case scenario, you know, he's the number one quarterback in the country, wins a national title, and is gone after a national championship game in, in Santa Clara. Because then that – because, number one, the quarterback class this year is just is not good. I right. mean, when you t- when you consider Drew Locke and Clayton Thorson are among the two top guys in that position, that is just not a good sign. So he could have a great year, like you said, possibly forward the highest, and maybe even win it, win a national title, and then he's gone after this year. Yeah, I think like like the 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 far positive end of the Dwayne Haskins spectrum is like as good as it could possibly be. Like Tim said, like national championship potential, first round draft pick. I think all that is possible. I wouldn't bet on it happening, but certainly possible. But I don't think like the polar opposite of that is out there for him on the low end of of the spectrum. I think the low end of the Dwayne Haskins spectrum is like being slightly better than just okay. I don't I don't think he can. The, the bottoming out of Dwayne Haskins I don't think looks all that bad just because of the nature of the offense. So you're say, saying like Michael Jordan once said, the ceiling is the roof. Ceiling is the roof. Second part of Andrew's question was to me. He said, what's your cheesesteak preference, Ishka Bibbles or D'Alessandro's? Um, out of those two, D'Alessandro's. But I've also never had Ishka Bibbles, which is a made-up word that people from Philadelphia say. Um, but my favorite is a place called John. It's called John's Roast Pork, but they have the best cheesesteak I've ever had. I'm curious, are these places, like, all shops in Philadelphia, do they have, like, little, like, you know, separate locations in, like, the suburb areas? Uh, no, they're all in the city, um, at least that I know of. I think there's only one D'Alessandro's, and that's in the city. There's only one John's Roast Pork, that's in the city. Like, there are multiple Steve Steaks, but I think they're all in the city. There are multiple Jim Steaks, but I think they're all in the city, too. Um, but if you talk to people from the Philly suburbs, they'll have their own place that they like that's near their home in the suburbs. I just don't go to the suburbs because why? Yeah, I've only – I think the last time I went to Philly was like only for like the Army-Navy game a couple years ago. It's America's finest city. Uh, okay, this will be the last question. And it's another good one. I like these hypothetical fake alternative universe questions. Um, from Joey Frass, uh, who you know is Drizzy Gets Busy on Twitter. He says, if Urban Meyer left Ohio State today and said, I'm going to coach Bowling Green for six years and then retire, what is the ceiling he could reach there? Would he win 10 games every season? Would he be able to sign a five-star? Would he be able to make a playoff? Uh, Win 10 games every year? Probably. Sign a five-star? No. Maybe. No. I would say no. I think that's crazy. It's a Mac. Make the playoff? No. I don't think so. 
unless he loaded up the front end of the schedule and played like three Big Ten teams or an SEC team, but why would they want to play an Urban Meyer coach Bowling Green team? So, yeah, if he went to Bowling Green, I think he could win 10 games every year and win the MAC every year. I don't think a MAC team is ever going to make the playoff, and I don't think uh, he would sign a five star recruit at a MAC school either. Yeah, I, I'm going to go on, you know, on record and say I don't think there's ever going to be a group of five team that makes the playoff. It's just not going to ever happen. a group of five team unless they expanded to eight. I just don't think it's ever going to happen. I think their the committee is always going to favor the power five teams because they have the tougher schedules throughout the year. That's why I. That's why I didn't. That's why no one took UCF seriously, even though they went undefeated, beat Auburn in the Peach Bowl. Yeah, but they didn't beat Auburn in the regular season. I know, but I mean, we're, I just don't think we're going to see that. The closest we ever... If Houston two years ago would have beat Oklahoma and won undefeated, you don't think that team would have made the playoff? I would have put them at five. I mean, who else do they play? I mean, they play in the American. They played in the American, which like is the top half of the American is pretty good, I think. Because I know they have... Houston and Memphis and UCF and Navy. Yeah. I mean, maybe they would have been five, I think. I just don't know if we're ever going to see that five star signing a five star Bowling Green not going to happen. It, that's only ever happened once, I think, in the group of five history, and that was a unique circumstance with Ed Oliver and Houston and the Tom Herman connection down there. Ten wins and always competing for a MAC title, I think, would be just fine at Bowling Green. You know, you're always in contention for the MAC. Um, you you win it every if you win almost every year, or you at least get to Detroit every year and play for that title. Have a nine ten win season. That's a every year. That's successful at Bowling Green. That's that would be outstanding. Yeah, I think I disagree about your power five playoff t- or group of five playoff take, but otherwise I agree. Okay, that's going to wrap it up, and that is a tight Buckeye talk coming in under an hour and thirty minutes. Okay, here is the thing that I got texted in the middle of the podcast that threw me off a little bit. So Doug uh, teased this last week that we were having a live show in Columbus before the season starts, and I have details on that for you. It will be on Monday, August 27th at the Hofbrau House in Columbus from 7 to 9 p.m. The Hofbrau House is on 800 Goodell Boulevard in Columbus. Um, all that set, we will have a post on cleveland.com slash OSU. There will be an, an event bright page. Um, for people to get on the list to show up, uh, and we'll have more details. But we want we have the date and the location and the time. Monday, August twenty seventh, at the Hofbrau House on Goodell Boulevard in Columbus. That's H O F B R A U H A U S. It's a German beer hall. From seven to nine p.m. on Monday, August twenty seventh. That's the Monday before the season starts. You can come, and uh, I don't I don't think it'll be like a straight live version of Buckeye Talk. It'll be structured probably a little differently. Um, but I'll be there. Doug will be there. Tim will be there, and we're just going to talk about Ohio State for two hours. And there'll be uh, food and drink, I'm assuming, um, and it'll be a good time. So look for the information at cleveland.com/osu about uh, how to get in. But mark your calendar Monday, August twenty seventh at the Hofbrau House, seven to nine p.m. Come look at our ugly faces, and we'll talk with you about Ohio State football. You looking forward to that? Oh, yeah, definitely. I love being Greece. This will be the first one I've had a chance to do in the short history on this beat. I don't know if you guys did any in the past. I know we flirted with the idea of doing you know, a meet and greet during the season last season that didn't materialize, so I'm excited for this opportunity, seeing how many of our loyal listeners show up. Yeah, I think they did one back in 2013 when like Cleveland.com changed its coverage strategy a little bit with Doug and Ari and Zach, but it wasn't quite this. Um, and we did one We did one with high school. Remember for state basketball, we did one at the Harry Buffalo. Oh, yeah. Um, little di- again, a little different. Uh, this will be, I think, more intimate. Um, 
and you'll be able to ask us questions and we'll talk at you for two hours. And I, I hope, I don't know if this will be the case, I hope that if you're not able to make it, we'll, we'll be able to record it and upload it um, to our various podcast channels. Um, but we'll see about that later. But if you want to come uh, Monday, August 27th at the Hofbrau House in Columbus is where we'll be on that night talking about Ohio State. So hopefully uh, we'll see you all there. And we'll be back next week with uh, the three of us again. Doug will be back from vacation. Uh, Tim and I will be around. And we'll be gearing up for Big Ten Media Days, which are in Chicago on July. What's the date, Tim? 23rd and 24th. July 23rd and 24th in Chicago. Ohio State stuff is on the 24th. But we'll be there uh, Monday and Tuesday. So next Wednesday we'll be talking about that a little bit. And then it's Media Days. And then we get back. And then, like, it's ready. It's time for camp. So, um, yeah, it's coming. It's coming fast. So, uh until next week, for Tim Bielek, I'm Bill Landis, Doug Lee Maurice is somewhere in Alaska, and that was Buckeye Talk. <laughs>